Our text this morning is Matthew 16, 15 through 18. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all of your eternal promises, um, your power, um, the way that you care for us in life, all of the truths that we heard about and worshiped through in song this morning. Um, We thank you for the gift of the church that you've given to us, Lord, and its uh, eternal security, and um, what that means to us as believers, as a body of of members, Lord. Um, And we thank you for this specific church, for Real Life Church, Lord. Um, We pray that our hearts and mind would uh, be attentive today and be open to hearing your word. Uh, In your name, amen. Hey, thanks, Colin. appreciate that. Um, Well, we are wrapping up our current series. We've been uh, in a series for... I think about 20 weeks or so. I mean, we haven't been in this series every single week, but probably for the last 20 weeks or so, we have been talking about what it means to be a local church, what it means to be members of the body, one body of Christ, and individually members of one another. Um, In other words, what it means to be a church member, members of the body, what that looks like. And we've gone through our church covenant statement line by line. And the church covenant statement begins with having been brought by faith or by God's grace to believe in Jesus Christ. We establish this covenant with one another. And then there's just a whole bunch of statements that start with we will. We will weep with those who weep. We will gather together. We will worship the triune God in spirit and in truth. And as we close this series, you know, I want for this to not merely be a series of messages that may encourage you for a week or a couple of weeks or even for the entire time we've been going through it, but rather I desire and I'm praying that this would be a clarion call to us as a church to give ourselves to the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ in being committed, faithful members of of the body of Christ, and of one another. And I think it's fitting that we end with what is probably the most important passage in the New Testament on the church. We've talked quite a lot about what we will do, right? We will do these things. This is what we commit to as members of the body. Here we see what the crucified and risen Lord Jesus is committed to do. Here we see what he will do. And this text, maybe many of you are aware of the the context here, but Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said, well, they say you're one of the prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah, maybe John the Baptist. And then he gets more pointed with his question and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is awesome. He says, Peter, 
you didn't come up with that on your own. You and the disciples didn't have a meeting of the minds and come up with that. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. This passage is so important. What we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ is present in his church right now, building his church. He, he always has been. And in every faithful local church, Christ is present building. Isn't that amazing? We're gathered together. We do different things, right? We are gifted in different ways. And in the midst of us, in some mysterious, mystical way, Christ is present in and through us, building his church. And that's happening all across the globe. And it will continue to happen until he returns. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In his own words, Jesus identifies the builder of the church. He identifies the identity of the church. He identifies the foundation of the church and the invincibility of the church. Amen? Let's think about these one at a time. Let's just, let's just unpack these one at a time. First, the builder of the church. Jesus identifies himself as the builder of the church. The builder of the church is Christ himself. And notice the absolute commitment of Jesus Christ to build his church. Jesus does not say, I will try to build my church. He doesn't say, I will do my best to build my church. He doesn't say, if, if you all cooperate with me, I will build my church. He doesn't say, if the Roman government cooperates, or if the right president gets in, or if the Supreme Court you know, does the right thing, I will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Christ is speaking in the first person singular. And at that time, he spoke these words. He said, I will build my church. And ever since, he has been building his church. He has been, he has been and is building his church. Christ is building in that he adds more people to the church, right? He's building in that sense. In John 10, 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. Notice, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus is building by adding more to the number of the church. If you're saved, you were once a lost sheep. Did you know that? You were once a lost sheep and the good shepherd went out and found you. I remember hearing a preacher once say, you know, those who say they're looking for God. And he said, God's not the one that's lost. You are. And he came looking for us, and he found us, and he brought us into the fold. And if you're here and you are rejoicing in salvation in Christ, it's because he did that. You were one of those sheep that he brought in. But Christ is also building his church in that he is bringing us to maturity. He is bringing us up from babes to adolescents to teenagers to mature adults in the faith. He is maturing the church. Listen to how Peter puts this in 1 Peter 2, 
verses 4 and 5, Peter says, As you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built together as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood or a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. He's building us together. He's building us up together to be a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood. To what end? To offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. We are being built up as a spiritual house through Jesus Christ, by means of Jesus Christ. And as a part of the body of Christ, as a member of the body, it's important for us to understand that we are called to build up the church. We are, we are called to build up the church. And that's part of how Christ builds his church or builds up the church. That is important, each part. But our building, we are to build in cooperation with Christ, under the headship of Christ, with the strength of Christ, and for the glory of Christ. One of the great blessings, I think, of reading church history is how you can see that Jesus has been building his church. I'm going through a series of church history books. The title of them is 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. And, um, and you just see how even when you, when you look at specific moments in time, it looks like the church is being demolished, beaten, right, torn to shreds. And yet when you look at it from the, the macro view, you see Jesus was faithful the whole time building his church. I think I mentioned the story. I just read it again recently, and I, I shared it with the, youth, with the kids on a Wednesday night at youth group. The story of a young woman named Blandina in the second century. She lived in a town called Lyon, which is in present-day France. She was a young woman, 22 years old, who remained faithful to Christ through terrible suffering and eventual martyrdom. In fact, some of the, she was brought into the Colosseum and they tried to feed her to lions, but the lions wouldn't touch her. So anyway, she died a horrible death. But some of those that were cheering for her to die in the Colosseum, they, they marveled at the fact that they'd never seen a woman suffer so terribly and for so long. And yet throughout all of that time, she was encouraging the other Christians she was with to remain faithful to Christ. What was, she, what was God doing through that? He was building his church. He was building up the body of Christ. I recently read of some faithful early church leaders like Irenaeus who wrote books, tracts, you know, treatises, fighting against serious threats to the church from false teachers and heresies. Irenaeus wrote a book called Against heresies. Pretty obvious what that's about, right? He's writing against Gnosticism and Martianism were two early heresies that threatened the church. His book and other writings from these early church fathers brought needed theological argument against damning heresies that were threatening people's lives, right? Bad theology hurts people. And heresy leads people to hell. So he wrote this book and what was God doing through that? He was building up his church. I mean, I, I love the history of, of the Reformation. And just like two years ago, it just dawned on me. It's like, wait a second, okay. So in 1440 or 50 or something like that, the Gutenberg printing press was invented. And just a couple generations later, 
was the Reformation and this intense desire to translate the Bible into these common languages from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and, and Latin into Germany or German and English. What was God doing? Building his church. He has been faithful for 2,000 years and he will continue to be faithful to build his church. All the way down to the present, listen to this, as each member of the body does what it was functioned to do, including, that's you, okay, that's you and me. As each member of the body does what it was designed and functioned to do and empowered by the Spirit to do, Christ continues to build his church. Here in the midst of us, he is present this morning building his church. Your part, your part, your function, what God has called you to do, however, you may, may seem to you that it's not that important, but through you, Christ is building his church. The work of the Great Commission to make disciples is working with Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 20, 21. He said, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to do the work so that it's not mainly us mustering up our strength to serve Christ, but we serve him with the strength that he supplies us. Isn't that interesting? He, we, we serve with the strength that he supplies. That's what Paul said in Colossians 1.29. He says, I work with all of the might that Christ works within me. And so we see that Jesus Christ is committed to building his church and he continues his building project through workers in local churches laboring to build up the body. I love the exhortation at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Or, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. If, you, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, it's, just, it's, the, it's the longest and most exhaustive treatment of the resurrection in the Bible. And it's wonderful. It's glorious. And the very last verse, you would think that Paul would say, now with such great hope, let us sing some worship songs. That's not what he says. He says, because this is true, Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, if we labor in the Lord, it's not in vain because it's for him and not ourselves, amen? And because we are laboring in the Lord in that we are laboring with the strength he supplies us. Christ is the builder of the church, and I love this thought. You've heard the verse in Philippians 1, perhaps. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That's true for you and I individually. Praise his name. I mean, I, I take refuge in that verse when I'm discouraged with myself. He will bring his work to completion. And it's true for the body of Christ. It's true for the church. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. And it's true for faithful local churches. He will bring his good work to completion. Jesus in these verses in Matthew 16 also identifies the identity of the church. Jesus said these words, I will build my church. 
I will build my church. He doesn't just say, I will build the church. I will build my church. It's a sense of possession. Jesus says, my church. The identity of the church, the church universal, and each local church is fundamentally that we are Christ's church. Right? Christ says of the church, it's mine. It's mine. Now, it's common for us to talk about a church, this church or other churches, and we might, we might describe a church by emphasizing certain distinctions, the kind of worship or style of worship that they have or their view of eschatology or soter- you know, their doctrine of salvation, whatever denomination they're part of. But the emphasis here that Christ is making is that we are his. And that should be fundamental in our minds. We are are his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Real life church is Christ's. We belong to him. First, I think, as as we think through this a little bit more, I think we need to just understand what the word church means. The Greek word ekklesia, which can be translated in English, the word congregation or assembly or most commonly church in the New Testament. The meaning of the word is those that are called out and gathered together. Those called out, like out of their homes, out to a public place, and they gather together. Of course, when we talk about the Christian church, we understand that we are called out of the world primarily And we are called together, to gather together in order to worship Christ. That's what we're called out to. We're called out of the world. We're called to gather together and we're called to gather to Christ in order to worship him. This idea of a called out assembly can be traced back to the Old Testament. When Moses was sent to Egypt to release the Israelites, and what, did, what was Moses told to do? Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Why? That they may come out into the wilderness and worship me or serve me. I praise God for technology. I praise God for the ability to reach people online and serve people online. But the idea of digital church or kind of like having an online community and that's it, is an oxymoron. It doesn't work. That's not church. That's not ecclesia. We're called to come out of the world and gather together to Christ in order to worship him. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. They're going to gather to me together in order to praise me and worship me. That's what Christ is calling for. Jesus said, I am building a people who are called out of the world and called together with one another to me in order to worship God. This is who we are. So let's think about what it means to be when Jesus says, I will build my church. First, I think of the word possession. Jesus Christ purchased the church and therefore it is his. We sang earlier about being ransomed. Jesus Christ purchased the church to be his cherished possession, and it is his cherished possession. Christ loves the church. 
Galatians 2.20, he loved me and gave himself for me. We, the church can say he loved us and he gave himself for us. We are his. Acts 20.28 20, says that Jesus Christ obtained the church with his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, You were ransomed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You and I are his because he purchased us at the high price of his blood. Isn't that stunning? Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? Doesn't it make you want to give yourself to him fully? He spilled his blood for us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends and Jesus says, I call you my friends. We are his. He owns us. He's purchased us. We belong to him. I think this also speaks of authority. We are his church because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's in charge. It's his church. He calls the shots. Ultimately, he's spoken to us. He's the one that calls the shots. He is the ultimate authority over the church. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 21, says, God the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. This is Christ he's talking of. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Gave him as head over all things to the church. We are his. We're his. He's the head of the church. I think this also speaks of our being joined to Christ, our being united to Christ. The most, intimate, the most intimate language in the New Testament referring to Christ and the church is one of marriage. Right? Christ, our bridegroom, the church is called the bride of Christ. We have been joined to Christ. Jesus Christ is the husband. The church is the bride. We belong to him. Paul exhorts husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I love the, I think it's in Song of Solomon chapter six or seven where the, the woman, the wife in that story says, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Martin Luther <laughs> When he, when, he under, when he came to understand what it meant to be saved by grace through faith in Christ, he went to that verse and he said that salvation is like we're married to Christ and when we come to him, all that we are and all that we have, we give to him and he takes all of our sin, all of our condemnation, all of our embarrassment, all of it and he takes it. And he looks us in the eyes and all that he is and all that he has, he gives to us. All of his righteousness, all of his glory, all of his grace. 
The church's identity is found in Christ because of his possession of us, his authority over us, his union with us, and of course because of his ultimate purpose for us, which is to bring glory to God. In Ephesians 3, it says, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever, amen. Let us never emphasize any other distinctiveness above the identity corporately that we have in Christ. Certainly individually as well, but even corporately that we have in Christ. We are his. Purchased by the blood of Jesus under the headship of Christ, united to him for his glory. Let's talk about the foundation of the church. I want to read all of these verses again because I think this really is the main point of this text. So verses, Matthew 16, verses 15 to 18, again, says this. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said that he was going to build his church on a certain rock. What was the rock? What was the foundation Jesus built his church on? Well, this has been a hotly contested issue for several hundred years between Roman Catholics and Protestants. The Roman Catholic Church has taught that the rock refers to Peter. The name Peter in Greek, Petros, means rock, like stone or rock. And so they have built the doctrine of the Pope and the, the, the papacy and the whole apostolic succession teaching on this interpretation. But I don't think that's what it means. Uh, that probably doesn't surprise you. That's not what I think it means. First of all, Jesus uses a similar but a different word when he says, on this rock I will build my church. On this rock, right? He, it's the word Petra. Whereas the name Peter, Petros, means rock or stone, the word Petra means rock bed or rocky ground or a cliff, a rocky cliff. So it's as if Jesus is saying, you are Peter, little rock. And on this rock, this rock bed, this stone ground, this rocky cliff, I am going to build my church. And notice what Jesus praises Peter for, blesses Peter for. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you. And then he gives the reason, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. Peter is blessed because of the revelation he received. The revelation he received about who Christ was. And I think this gives us an important hint as to the foundation of the church. The foundation is Christ and the revelation concerning Christ. That's the foundation of the church. And I think the second part is important when I say Christ and the divine revelation about him. I think that's an important part to add on. And here's why. I'm going to give you a, a bit of an anecdote. A few years ago, a very popular Christian teacher made a splash. Not a good splash. Right? This is not something that people look back and say, that was great. 
Great splash. He made, a, he made a splash when he did a teaching series in which one of the underlying premises was that the Christian faith is not built on a book, but on an event. He said, we shouldn't say, I believe thus and so because the Bible says so, but because Jesus rose from the dead. And of course, we would all affirm if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is nothing, right? We are of all people most to be pitied. There's no Christianity. However, where that breaks down is here. How do we know about the resurrection? That it happened. How do we know what it means? How do we know about its power to change our lives? Doesn't all that come from a book? Right? It comes from a book. And so when we talk about the foundation of the church that is built on Christ, amen, amen a thousand times, but how do we know about Christ? Divine revelation that God gives us in a book. God gave it to Peter directly. Praise God, Peter, Paul, John, James, the rest of them wrote it down in a book for us that we can look at and we can know is true and we can build our lives on it and that the church is built on the foundation of Christ and this revelation that we have. And so it is that Christ and the revelation that Peter confessed of Christ is the foundation of the church. This is why the divine truth of Scripture has always been central in the life of the church and it's why Scripture has always been attacked by enemies of the church, both foreign and domestic, both those in the church and without the church. I think this is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The, the first apostles laid the foundation right? Foundation, how many times do you lay a foundation of a building? One time. They laid the foundation, right? And we are called to build on that foundation. The early church continually devoted themselves to, in Acts 2 it says, to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine or apostolic doctrine. And then as the church continued to be built by Christ through Christians down through the ages, it's built on the foundation once laid. Christ and his truth is the foundation. And you and I should be very careful that in all the building, all the work we want to do for Christ's glory, that we are building on this foundation. Jesus is not looking for clever people to invent something new. He's looking for faithful people to build on the once laid foundation. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. So he said, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. What sort of work each one has done. If the work that, is, that anyone, anyone has built on it, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The foundation of the church is Christ and divine truth about him. Let's build on this foundation well. Amen? And finally, the, the invincibility of the church. Because Christ is the builder of the church, because the identity of the church is found in Christ, we are his church. And because Christ and the truth of Jesus is the rock and foundation of the church, Listen, brothers and sisters, the church, the true church is invincible. It is invincible. This is not me getting up here with humor. I mean, I'm just saying we, are, we might be weak and utterly pathetic, but Jesus is mighty and strong and his church will prevail, will overcome because of him. Here's what Jesus said. I will build my church, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I, here's what I think this means. That death itself, the word hell here is the, it comes, it's the Greek word Hades which everywhere means death or the grave. That the gates of death itself cannot keep the church bound. Death is the final enemy of all humanity, of all human beings, and death itself cannot, will not, because of Christ, keep the church bound. Amen? So Christ himself will continue to build the church, and death itself cannot keep him from doing it. It will not keep him from doing it. There is not a single gate that will keep the church locked up, not even death. And here's why. Because the one who spoke these words has conquered death. And in him, we do too. Our Lord Jesus himself said these most epic words in Revelation 1. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, fear not. For I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Listen to this. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and hell. Jesus Christ died and was buried. He descended to the realm of the dead. The Apostles' Creed, there's a line in there that sometimes trips people up. It says, he descended to hell. It means Hades. He descended to the realm of the dead. He was buried in a tomb. And he rose from the dead. And he conquered the grave. And in him, we have conquered death and the grave as well. Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you also will live this is the promise of resurrection the church will continue to go from triumph to triumph and one guy said i thought this was pretty good 
He said, each time cleverly disguised as defeat. Right? The church will continue to go from triumph to triumph. Oftentimes, it'll look like defeat, but it will go from triumph to triumph because of Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not triumph over it. It won't overcome the church. In observing church history, there are many times it appears that the church is being defeated, locked up, bound in by the gates of persecution, false teaching, and death, but Christ continues to build. I remember reading a story about, uh, we have, uh, listen, I have a book. um, It's called, uh, uh, it's about the Chinese church. And, and, it, and it chronicles some individuals who, when Mao Zedong came into power and just began um, hunting down Christians, putting them in, in prison, executing them. And this one man went into prison as a young man. And he came out like three decades later or something as a middle-aged or older man. And literally he wondered, are there any Christians left in China? When he went into prison, he thought maybe there was a million. When he came out, I should have looked up the story to get the numbers exactly right. Many years later, two decades later, 20 years later, there were like 70 million Christians. And there was underground, right? The underground church was thriving. The history of the church has shown that as more and more martyrs spilled their blood, it became the seed of the gospel to spread and flourish even more. Death, the last enemy, will not overcome the church. Which is why you and I as individuals, as members of Christ and members of one another, ought to be able to say, and let's just pray that God would, would really bring us to the place where we can say this, this it's my prayer. We should be able to say like the missionary to India, Henry Martin, you know what he said? Check this out. He said, you cannot harm me. You can only kill me. Isn't that good? You can't harm me. You can only kill me. Isn't that basically what Jesus said? He said, don't fear those who can only kill the body and can't kill the soul. Henry Martin said elsewhere, he said, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. The true church, whose builder and founder is Christ, and whose foundation is laid on Christ and the truth of Christ, is absolutely invincible because of Christ. And so, as we close out this series, I want to wrap up here. How should you and I then live? And I just have one, just one word with, with a few additional points based on this one thing. How should we live? One word, faithfulness. Faithful. You know, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's probably not the one we often talk about. We talk about love, joy, and peace, right? And then we kind of forget about the other ones. We kind of get convicted when we get to the end, self-control. It's like, oh gosh, you know. And then those ones in the middle, we just, you know, don't think a whole lot about. Faithfulness faithfulness. Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, 
but a faithful man who can find. We are called to faithfulness, fidelity to Christ. Fidelity to Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to our Lord, to the head of the church, to the one who's purchased us, to the one who's brought us to himself, to the great shepherd of the flock. We are called to faithfulness to him. But I just want to just say, faithfulness to Jesus, here's what it looks like though. Faithfulness to Jesus looks like faithfulness to his church. So many people, so many people, I probably have said something like this, what, or thought things like this in the past at times. So many people, maybe you, think I'm faithful, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. Jesus and I got this thing going on, I love him. I just don't really care for his church. It'd be like you saying, I really want to come over to your house. I love coming to your house, but I don't like your wife. It's like, oh, that's a problem. I don't think you can come over anymore until we get this solved, right? And it's not because the church is perfect. My wife is almost perfect. But I mean, it's not, not because the church is perfect, but it's because if we really love Christ and are faithful to him, it will show itself by faithfulness to the church. It cannot be any other way. So faithfulness to Christ works its way out in faithfulness to the church and it works its way out in faithfulness to the truth. Faithfulness to his truth. The truth concerning Christ. And I, I, uh, I just read... Um, J.C. Ryle said there are three things that a young man cannot have a little of. And I can't remember two of them, (laughs) but one of them was a little false teaching. Don't even settle for a little bit, right? Don't, Don't settle for a little bit. Faithfulness, fidelity to the truth. A little sin, I think is what he said, a little something else, and a little false teaching. No. If we're faithful to Christ, we're faithful to what he says. And I just would say this in finishing up. Faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to his church, faithfulness to his truth. Check this out. All the way to the end of your life. All the way to the end. Let's pray.